It's not like we're saying anything for the ages, Gary. No, but I, I'm, I'm going to get a new computer by the end of the summer. You've been saying that for months. I know. And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, or mostly in our spare rooms, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast! Oh, man, this is, this is, that sounded like air coming out of a helium balloon at a child's party. Well, speaking of a child's party, I spent last week at the Nebula Awards. No, that's terrible to say. The Nebulas are completely for grown-ups. They're, they're mature, well-thought-out. It was at the Palmer House. It was a lovely banquet. There were lovely people. It was a historic Nebula evening, I suppose, in the sense that, as you pointed out, uh, I think on Facebook, not the news was not that all the Nebulas uh, were won by, by, by women writers, but that that didn't seem to be such big news anymore. I didn't feel like it was, and I thought that was actually a very positive thing. I mean, I think what you want to do is feel that... Okay, if what you're looking for is actual integration of things and actual um, more inclusiveness, then what makes something interesting is when it becomes unremarkable. You know, it's like there was a comment that was attributed to Ruth Gaynor Ginsburg, or whatever the, uh, Ruth Ginsburg, the, you know, the judge, mm. Supreme Court Justice, saying how many you know women should yeah. be on the Supreme Court. And I think her answer was, well, nine. And I, I know, when I listened to that, I thought it wasn't such a radical political position, but it's the fact that no one would have commented if there were nine men on the Supreme Court. So when it's unremarkable for nine women to be on the Supreme Court, then you've got equality in, you know, kind of thing. Well, I'm not saying that things are anywhere near equal or anything else, but in terms of science fiction becoming more inclusive, better than it, it was, a year like this where uh, women won all of the nebula, nebulas themselves, um, th- and, and that it didn't seem remarkable that they should do so, that was a great sign. Well, that's exactly what I mean. And it, it, it was not that many years ago when, at least within my memory, when having a few women on the nebula ballot was, was a sign of progress. Yeah. And that today, that would be a sign of regress to some extent. That's very uh, true. Uh, and, and, and when you look at the, the most honored, uh, we've talked about this, the most award-honored writers currently practicing are probably still Connie Willis and Lois Bujold. Oh, possibly. It really depends what, what you're counting as awards. Uh, that, that, that will well, impact yeah. a great deal. I have to say, we normally talk far too much about awards. I think we do way too much, and we've said we talk too far too much about awards. We've got, we've we've been that honest about things, Gary. Um, but for all that, there's been awards we haven't talked about. We didn't talk about the Hugo nominations because they're dull, boring, and overrun by other influences. Right. We didn't talk about the Locus Award nominations much. I don't have much to say about the, the Nebula nominations. I mean, I look at the Nebula ballot and the Nebula winners, and I have to say. M- some of the things that I would have voted for ended up on the ballot. Nothing I would have cho- cho- you know, choose to win one. Uh-huh. Um, which, I mean, look, and that's the way awards have always been. That's all right. But I'm very, I mean, like, I'm disappointed there are some works that I think are major works didn't end up having the impact that I felt they would. Um, I don't think, oh, no, 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 now let me, let me stop you right there because, uh, does, does it take an award nomination to suggest that a book is having impact? No, but quite often an a award nomination will reflect the impact it's having. 
it will reflect the impact it's having on a certain population. Sure, um, that's true. And, and and that population changes every year. But I mean, the, and, and in terms of the nebulas, in terms of the science fiction writers of America, that's a defined population. Um, what we can't measure, and we were both talking about uh, this novel that both you and I agree was one of the best, if not the best, science fiction novels of last year, Kim Stanley Robinson's Aurora, that I suspect that's had considerable impact. It may not have had impact on the specific people who are involved with voting and nominating awards ballots. That may be true. I mean, I think it didn't... Well, I, I think the reasons that Aurora didn't end up on the Nebula ballot or the Hugo ballot, uh, I think it is on the Locus uh, Awards shortlist, mm. uh, and I don't... I think maybe it made the, the Campbell, maybe, I think... Uh, it's obviously not going to make the World Fantasy Award being a hardcore science fiction well, novel, but I think it belonged on the uh, the Hugo ballot. Now, I think that part of the reason it didn't make it was the, the central thesis of Aurora is that the whole idea of space travel isn't going to work out. Interstellar space travel isn't going to work out. Not really a very popular kind of argument with all you know hardcore science fiction readers. And then, you know, he's not core nebula community i guess i don't know but i and look it'll be one of those things historically you look back and it'll be well okay let's look at 2016 and 2015 what major works didn't end up making ballots that you thought would uh was this book that we now read 20 years later thought to be as important as it was back in the time there's always things when you look back you know like if we were to look back to 1995 there were books that were winning awards then which people would look at today and go i've got no idea you know, not widely what being read. Is, yeah. You know, so I mean, are people actually reading Celestis by Paul Park? Or Beggars and Choosers I, by Nancy Kress? Or, <laughs> you know, I mean, Calder of the Long mm-hmm. Sun is probably still being read by Gene Wolfe. Uh, Bob Sawyer, I mean, this, these are the 1995 nebulas, right? So 10 years earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Metropolitan by Walter John Williams, I think, is maybe available th- directly from him rather than through, through, through you know, a mass market publisher. So, I mean, it doesn't really mean there's there's longevity out there, I suppose. And, I mean, so for you, I mean... Go ahead. That was all garbled, Gary. What were you saying? My argument is this, that impact and longevity are two different things. Yes, they are. Uh, um, a novel which is read 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years later uh, may not have been an award nominee, absolutely. Uh, and the same thing is true. We've talked about this in terms of Nebulas, Hugos, Academy Awards, Nobel Prizes, or whatever. You could, you could, it's, it's easy to pick out things from decades ago that nobody reads anymore. The question is, if this is a valuable guide to the history of the field, why did these books have the impact they had when they had that impact? So a book could be very, very important in 1965 because it addressed issues of 1965, let's say. Sure, and then it stops um, being read, or something else happens. Um, I, I guess. But, yeah. Yeah, I, I guess the one of these side issues, without directly responding to that, is if a book like Aurora comes out and is widely reviewed. And is widely read and is very mm. you know, popular. I think it's been a very successful book, but doesn't really make any of the major awards. Doesn't end up risk historically being lost because the shortcut 
is, well, that was fun, Gary. Just had the power go out here well, in Perth. It's, it is what passes for a, a stormy day. And so we're prone to these things. I think it makes, it makes a dramatic, suspenseful podcast. Is, is, is Jonathan going to be blown away on the dusty winds or, <laughs> I guess it's winter there though, isn't it almost? It is, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's May and we're moving into winter now, uh, through, through August. So yes. And I'll escape, escape the last bit of August by, or a well, bit of winter by coming out to, uh, Kansas City. Anyway, we're talking about Kim Stanley Robinson and about Aurora and about awards. Well, we were not talking just about awards. We were talking about question, and you had raised the question of uh, novels that won awards 20 or 30 years ago. And my point was there's a difference between longevity and impact, that a novel which has, or a story, which has enormous impact uh, in one year may fade from memory, but it still was an important story historically for that moment. Um, and I'm sure if I have another glass of wine, I'll think of examples. Well, I was about to say, how do you actually track this phenomenon that you're proposing? Because if there's a story, that let's say there's a story or a novel, a novel, okay? Let's uh-huh. say Holy Fire by Bruce Sterling, which came out in 1995, mm-hmm. and is probably, certainly in my opinion, his best novel, right? I don't know if it was influential. It was certainly seen as important at the time. I remember quite clearly in terms of reviews, uh-huh. discussion, and it did win an award or two. If it hadn't, okay. and you look back historically, how would you determine that it had been influential? I think, um, well, okay, that raises a third factor, because we were talking about immediate impact, longevity, and now you're talking about influence, which is a third dimension altogether. Uh, and I'm not sure that has been, because that was a, it, it dealt very interestingly with a t- topic of longevity, which has never been a, a kind of continuing discussion topic in science fiction. There were some great longevity novels, not great, but very good longevity novels, I thought, by Brian Stableford. So I, I think part of the problem there is it's not plugging into a, a, a stream. The novel of Bruce Sterling, which I would argue was significant at the time, and it was, I think, right after Holy Fire, was Zeitgeist, because that was, an inter- that was first of all, a millennium novel, and it was a novel set, it was... Uh, it's a Max Headroom novel set 20 minutes in the future. It's actually, uh, I think it came out in 2001 and was set in 1999 or something. So that seemed at the time to be a very clever kind of Gibsonian thing. Is this the future or the past? Uh, what are we dealing with in terms of artificially created uh, pop groups and so forth? And it seemed relevant, and I think it was important. I'm not sure it seems that relevant and important today. No, I mean, I think the book's probably been out of print for yeah, a while. It was, it was, it was a, there were a lot of millennium novels like that, um, that some of which may have had staying power. One of Elizabeth Hand's uh, fascinating novels called Glimmering was her millennium novel, and I think she, she may have revised that in some way to make it less of its, its, its age. I may be wrong about that. It certainly was reissued recently. Mm. Um, but here's an example of a book that, uh, whether it had any impact, now this is going a little bit outside the science fiction genre field, and it's one I keep mentioning on the podcast, um, was George Stewart's Earth Abides, which won the first International Fantasy Award, as I recall. I don't think of it as ever even on the ballot for Hugo or, or the, ne- the Nebula. Actually, the Hugo, Hugo and the Nebula didn't exist. Um, but 
it was a kind of a mainstream novel. It was kind of one of the it was it's one of the classic novels of what we might call us end of the world degradation of society thing. And it's been in and out of print, mostly in print for the last forty or fifty years. The most recent one with an introduction from Connie Willis. It's one of those novels that I keep talking to writers and readers and finding out a surprising number of people have read that novel and love it, even though it seemed to make no impact at the time at all. And may or may not have been influential. Well, I think it's still being talked about 60 years after its publication. It probably was influential. I, I think it probably is true. And I think that to some extent it set up a template for a lot of the kind of disaster fiction, apocalyptic fiction that's that, that's followed because because it, it treated that as a as a mainstream novel. Uh, and I think that sort of modality is coming back into disaster fiction, um, which kind of sort of, it, it, it raises another interesting question, which will be changing the subject a little bit. Yeah, so if yeah. you want to follow this, now if you want to follow the subject for a minute, no, yeah, let's see where um, you're going. Okay, um, okay. Our previous subject. This is okay. This is a first time for Cood Street Podcast listeners. This is a transition. <laughs> we were pre- we were previously talking about impact, longevity, and influence, three separate things that a novel can do when it comes out. We are changing the topic now, uh, partly because I mentioned George R. Stewart's Earth Abides, which was received pretty much as a mainstream novel. Now, this is an idea that came to me actually because of your anthology, mm-hmm. Drowned Worlds, um, and... Let me explain what the idea is. When you're dealing with a fil- fam- familiar science fiction trope, and yeah. this could be uh, inundated worlds is not a new idea in science fiction. No. Um, and it's not just inundated worlds. We could use Generation Starships and talk about the Stan Robinson. When you're dealing with such a familiar trope, you seem to have really two kinds of options. One is you try to really out-ingenious everybody else and come up with some clever sort of technical trick. The other, the other, the other, only other, other direction you can go in is to write other themes into the story or the novel, themes of character, themes of relationships. Um, now, the reason this occurred to me in reading Drowned Worlds, which is a very good anthology and everybody should buy it when it comes out, is that, and I don't know if you noticed, about half the stories in, in your anthology have to do, have to do with families. Yeah. With family relationships. Yes. With family tensions, with family guilt. Um, normally not something that we would think of as being inherent in the post-apocalyptic theme. Uh, you, you don't have to write about families when you're writing about flooded worlds, but so many of the writers that you have in the anthology chose to do that. My question is, why did they do that? Because I think they're looking to me- uh, find an emotional way, uh, well, way of measuring the emotional impact of change, and uh, it's the people around you that reflect that the most, and you're caring for them. So it's just, those are your relationships, or the family, everything else, are the people who are affected by these things, and that affects you. Same thing that happens with Clade, you know, uh, James Bradley's novel. I was going to mention James Bradley exactly. Clade is another family novel that's very effective uh, because it takes the catastrophe. To a to to a human level, to a to a level of of loss, um, which which you feel in 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 that novel very dramatically, but also in in, in 
um, and some of the stories in, in Drowned Worlds. But the other technical aspect of that is that the the wonder of Drowned Cities, uh, and as, as much as it is fun the, to, 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 to see what Venice looks like underwater, and I think your your only reprint is that classic story by Stan Robinson. Yeah, it is. Um, we, we we get to see the ruins of Harvard underwater. We get to see Key West underwater. We get to see San Francisco underwater. That's kind of a haunting, uh, but almost by now familiar kind of iconography. So how do you if if the disaster by itself doesn't convey the emotional impact that it might have when you were first thinking about it? How do you make it real? And you make it real by showing how family members or people who love each other, uh, you know, face all these emotions that are basically the emotions of mainstream fiction. Yes. Well, I mean, look, the, the emotions of mainstream fiction are the emotions of human life, and I think bringing that into science fiction is a natural thing to do. Uh, well, what you see in yeah. Drowned Worlds, though, as you see, having been invited, you know, writers having been invited to talk about drowned landscapes, and of course, one of them immediately didn't, which throws you off. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know, they, they look at, and they, you know, once you get past the, I guess, the uh, casual romanticism of, you know, the, the idea that a drowned landscape would be engaging and mm-hmm. romantic and different, you know, you'd be able to go snorkeling through the the canyons of Manhattan, sort of a thing, right? Then you're looking for some real impact. And the way you look at it is, well, how has it changed your life? I mean, the Catherine Valenti story that closes the book, how has, you know, sort of the you know, change affected her life in, in a meaningful way? And, and it's her relationship with family and her community. Uh, how does, um, well, even, even the story you're talking about, the Ken Liu story with the inundated Harvard, it's mm. relationships with the people around you rather than, the event, because after all, drowned worlds are a setting, you know, and and so you need to do something with that. Well, uh, yeah, exactly my point. But at one time, the set was enough. And in some ways, you can still do disaster stories in the old way. I mean, one of the things that uh, uh, I remember going back to, I think, probably the late 1920s, was S. Fowler writes The Deluge, which was about England being flooded. And I'm not exactly sure I recall what caused the flooding, but it wasn't human action at all. And it was an adventure story. It was an adventure story basically about let's get to higher ground because here comes the water. Let's get to some more higher ground because here comes the water. The characters in it were 1920s Brit- British kind of romance adventure characters. Um, and recently, the most recent gigantic uh, effort to deal with flooding was, was the two-volume Stephen Baxter, Ark and Flood and Ark, um, in which the disasters are really still the star. I mean... His, his his characters have never been his strongest point. He has some of his better characters in this one, but basically in um, in flood, you get to see every step of the inundation of the world. You know the Thames estuary floods, and then and then you have oh, he does the disaster really really well. That's what hard science fiction can do, but what it can't do is. Understand, as you're saying, not just the, the, uh, the family relationship part of it, the kind of psychic, psychological part of it. There's a term sure. that um, J.G. J. Ballard coined a term. I think he coined a term. And I think I remember it correctly when he was talking about his own disaster novels and his concrete trilogy, uh, that he was trying to get at the archaeopsychic dimension of human experience. 
That's Which fabulous. Is, I love that. Yeah. That's a great word, isn't it? I think, I think it means something vaguely Jungian. But, but you mentioned that, and that, you had me thinking about that because your introduction, you mentioned Ballard as okay. being an influential novel on you. And Ballard's novel is not a traditional disaster novel by any stretch of the no, imagination. It's not, no. I mean, th- look, drowned worlds wouldn't have existed without the drowned world. You know, I end up reading okay. The Drowned World, and it directly influenced the decision to try and assemble Drowned Worlds. And the other th- works, which I do name-check, I think, in the introduction, are both The Child Garden by Jeff Ryman and The Choice by Paul McCauley, both of which feature right. inundated landscapes. But where, if you like, the, the mechanics of it aren't the point. You know, uh, the, the mechanic... I mean, like, with Ark and uh, Flood, the Baxter novels, the mechanics of how you would flood the world and what would happen are what it's primarily about. Um, exactly. Ha- in, in almost none of the stories in Drowned Worlds does the mechanism by which the world becomes drowned or inundated remotely important. I mean, I guess maybe in the Sean Williams story, you'd have to say there, there was a hard SF approach to that that aspect of it. But for the rest of it, no. For the rest of it, it's really about how I respond, how I feel emotionally, what does it mean to me? What does it mean to the people around me? How do I live in a world like this? Uh, Sam Miller t- touching on, on the religious impact of it. Um, uh-huh. Valenti on the cultural aspect of it. Um, I mean, and that's, that's what you'd expect those writers to do. It's, it, it, I mean, it's probably in some ways not as hard SF, sorry, hard SF nor a book as it could have been. But I think it came out as being the kind of book that you would get on this subject in the 21st century. You know, I don't. I don't think we necessarily are as immediately interested in the the mechanics. You know, I mean, like I, I don't know how many people are reading Flood and Ark as an example. I have no idea either, and I doubt if anybody is reading S. Fowler writes the Deluge anymore. I mean, most of the stories uh, do make at least some nodding mention of what. This is what these people did to themselves. Yeah. They, they killed their own children. The, what, what I think Cat Valenti calls fuckwits, uh, meaning us. Uh, so, so there is, there is the kind of awful warning, uh, in the background, but that's not what it's about. And the reason I think this is important and the reason I think it's related to something like, uh, like Stan Robinson's Aurora is that what it suggests to me is that the classic themes of science fiction can't be sustained by mechanical means anymore. In other words, <clears throat> The Generation Starship only works as a convention if it becomes the setting for a novel, which, interestingly enough, in Aurora is also about family. Uh, the inundated world can you, you, you can do it mechanically, but to some extent, by the time he gets to Ark, he's dealing with family feuds and politics and, and various things like that. Um, and the reason I think this is important is because some of these themes. Uh, and the the first one out of the gate probably is time travel. No longer belong to science fiction necessarily at all. Time travel stories are romance stories. They're mystery stories. They're all kinds of things. Um, I think when you get novels like Cormac McCarthy's The Road, you get the apocalyptic novel moving outside the realm of science fiction. And the only way to make these themes work is to write really well about really human concerns. I think that's true. Let me ask you something that occurred to me while you were talking, which, of course, is me actually responding tendentially. Do you think that, and I think the answer is yes, but do you think that generational resentment 
and, uh, and, and a sense of loss will become major themes in science fiction. Generational, referring to which generations? That, okay. If you look around at the people who are writing today, they're, you know, uh-huh. they're, they're, there's a batch of very, very promising writers in their 20s and early 30s, and I'm sure right behind them a younger group again, who, who over the next 10 or 15 years will come to their majority mm. and have more and more influence on the field. They are going to live in a world that is more and more damaged by the choices that were made by boomers and their immediate descendants. Do you think resentment of the damage that's been done by that that you know that generation and a se- and, and dealing with responsibility for it will become a major theme? I don't think that's going to become a major thing um, in the immediate future. The uh, um, I think the key line in, in 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 the whole anthology, which I actually I'm, I'm talking about this not only because I want people to read it and I like it and I'm very impressed by it but because I just I, I, I just read it and the key line strikes me as being um, one from Nina Allen's story which is a very simple and very obvious statement and her statement was if I'm quoting the story correctly uh, nobody gives a shit about the future until it actually happens and the resentment of younger generations we haven't gotten to the point yet where they can actually look back and say they're doing anything better than we are. I don't think that writers in their 20s and 30s, by and large, are capable of changing the world any more than the generation of the 50s and 60s and 70s were. In other words, the collective will simply hasn't been there, and it still isn't there. So I I, I think it would be a little bit precious for a younger writer to say, People back in the 40s and 50s uh, should have been doing something because, by and large, nobody's doing much of anything these days. Look, I think you're wrong. I think you're going to find it's going to become very major. I'll tell you why. I think we are now, I think a lot of people would state or at least acknowledge, in an Anthropocene era, a time when the world is being profoundly changed by the activities of humanity, right? Uh, That's the subtitle of the anthology, Tales from the Anthropocene. Uh, I think... As the sense of loss grows over the over the coming years, as more species and environments are lost, I mean, I saw the other day that well, the, the first uh, permanent damage to coral reefs in Florida, where they're actually dissolving permanently, yes, has happened, are. yeah, which is awful. Uh, and there's been significant damage due to glo- because of heating of the ocean to uh, the uh, Great Barrier Reef. As more and more is lost. I think resentment of that loss and a attempt to find res- place responsibility on somebody is going to grow. And I think you're going to see coming into science fiction, people writing, not necessarily a, an individual writer try to place blame on somebody else, but the characters in their fiction doing exactly that. Well, the characters in the fiction, I can see that. I can see a kind of sense of, of, of um, our parents and grandparents failed in their responsibility. Uh, and you see some of that in other areas of fiction already. Um, you see, I mean, one of the themes in... There, let me give two examples that are completely unrelated to science fiction. Um, a generation of scholars um, who are embarrassed, a generation of, of, of Brits who are frankly discomfited by what the British Empire did over a period of about 150 years. That shows up a lot in British fiction because the post-colonial 
surge in British fiction, I think, has something to do with exactly the guilt you're talking about. Um, this is a little riskier analogy, but what I know of um, German fiction in the 70s and 80s is that there was a sense of what did our parents and grandparents do? That's a major theme in, in writers like Gunter Gross. Um, so, so I think that is something that's going to happen. Um, I think the difference with the global warming is, first of all, yeah, now you're right. Now, uh, this is a first generation where we know it's happening. Whereas the Nina Allen quote says, the future has begun to happen. It's here. It's not something. And looking around for responsibilities is more difficult because it's more diffuse. You can't blame the British Empire for having destroyed, you know, the uh, coral reefs in, off of Florida. The whole world was responsible for it. So I think that's the distinction I would make. It's it's not as though a particular generation in a particular country did something. It's as it's a failure to act rather than a specific kind of action. Okay. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what happens and how, how fiction evolves and how the field evolves in the coming decade, I guess. You know, um, and that will begin to, to, I guess, address what you were t- saying right at the beginning of this conversation uh, before our, our interruption to the power out mm-hmm. about influence and about books still being read and, you know... Ha- how awards maybe do or don't reflect that and how that ties into things like the impact of, you know, will we, will we look back in 30 years at an interregnum in the Hugos where for 10 years they just didn't count for much, you know, or are they dead? Uh, Are they actually, there you go. There's one. Are the Hugos dying, Gary? Um, haven't they always been? No, I think that's, that's, Um, I, I, I think that's kind of, um, uh, easy to to, to 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 say something like that. I mean, if you look at it, what, the way I remember it is they were in the background, they were on the rise, they would occasionally dip and fall. But this has been, you know, three years or four years now of concerted attack on the substance of the Hugo Awards. Yeah. And what I see creeping in on the defensive side rather than the attacking side in this particular exchange is weariness and ennui. I think that may be true. I think it is true. Um. But um, I, I guess over what? I mean, because we've already established that the Hugos may or may not mean ma- lasting influence or lasting impact of, of, of a writer. It does represent a kind of celebration. And to some extent, that's really, I think, what's what's in danger of being lost. If people no longer have fun going to a Worldcon, uh, if, if, the, if the whole experience becomes soured, that's really tragic beyond what's actually happening to the Hugos right now. I don't see that happening in the immediate future. I, I don't uh, Spokane, see any, I, just, I was at Spokane yeah. last. Uh, people were having a good time in Spokane, even though the Hugo Awards ceremony itself turned out to be, let's say, problematical. Oh, look, I don't see any correlation at all between the health of the World Con and the health of Hugos. I mean, if I look around right now, I mean, over the last three years, more and people are more and more people are going to the World Con. More and people, more. And and more people seem to be interacting and interested about in the Worldcon, so that's that's terrific, and its its situation is fine. The Hugo's, on the other hand, I mean, like if you'd said to me five years ago that I would have a point where I'd be looking, going, do I even need to go Sunday night or Saturday night? Yeah, is Saturday night and the Hugo's a better night to just arrange another dinner? Well, but there are a lot of people uh, for whom the Hugo's are 
an entertainment at the end of the convention. It's not as though I mean, most of the vast majority of people who go to World Cons are not nominated for Hugo's. They're not friends no. of people who've been nominated for Hugo's. They may have favorite books, or they may not. They may be there for the costuming or for the gaming or for the media stuff. Sure. Um, I think that celebration is 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 relatively unaffected by the Hugo's. It's um, I mean the Hugo's the World Science Fiction Convention had been around for a couple of decades before there were Hugo's. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so, and as we've said, I don't think this is going to affect the health of the, of the Worldcon at all. But I mean, do you find? I mean, like this year, okay. To be completely honest, this year, I've already voted in the 2016 Hugo's, not nominated, but voted. Oh wow, you're ahead of me. I I logged on. It took me five minutes. There's a whole bunch of no awarding and a little bit of of a sideshow beside that, but mostly no awarding the ballot. And then you know, sitting there going, well, if you're just going to no award the ballot, do you really care enough to go? I'm not sure I do. I don't know. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a decision we'll both have to make in Kansas City, I suppose. I mean, there's... Well, okay, it's complicated last year and this year because there's a kind of theatrical apprehension of going to the Hugo's. What is going to happen there? Is something... Uh, you don't want to miss anything if people are going to be talking about it the next day. But that's 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 theater. That's not, that's not honoring books and films. That's um, the fear that, you know, you might miss something dramatic. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't think that um, in the years I've gone to Worldcons and I've, on the one hand, haven't been to as many as I should have. On the other hand, I've been to more than I should have um, or more than I really wanted to. Most years, uh, the Hugo Awards are kind of a curiosity at the end. I'm, I'm there, I sometimes have things I really want to support. Sometimes I have very little investment in it. And I think this is true every year. Maybe. I think there's there there well there are people who have who who want to get behind one novel they want to see if their favorite book will win. There are the friends of the best fan artist who are really really rooting for that fan artist to win, and ninety percent of the other people in the room have no idea who this is yeah which means that it's 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 really a a, a balkanized set of awards to begin with. And as we've noticed year after year, no, the, the, the novel award category and I suppose the film uh, dramatic categories always have much larger participation rates than things like best related fiction or best fanzine or best, um, um, well, fan artist or fan writer. I guess my thing, I mean, on one hand, there's the rooting for it thing. I mean, the very first Hugos I ever attended were at Con Francisco in 1993. I had, okay. ju- I had just met my future wife, and she had snuck me in to sit up in the VIP section with Locus. So I think I was mm-hmm. a row or two behind uh, Stan Robinson, who at that point mm-hmm. was up for, I think he was up for Red Mars, maybe, or Green Mars. He was up for Red Mars. Okay. And, and I was hugely in favor of Red Mars, and I couldn't believe I was sta- sitting just a row or so away from Stan Robinson. And it was a good batch of winners, actually, at Con Francisco. But I felt really engaged in a cheering kind of a way. I didn't attend another Hugo's until 2002, maybe. Uh-huh. And that was as part of the Locust team. So my primary interest was in Locust winning and being nominated. Um, because that was in San Jose. And I, I now knew some of the nominees. I was rooting for them. And probably for the next handful of years when I would go to Worldcon, 
Because I went sort of like sporadically through that period, 2002 through 05, maybe. Um, I was kind of going, you know, hey, you know, people were coming off. And then when come 2008, I'm actually nominated myself for the first time. Then uh-huh. the actual experience of it all changes, yeah? Because suddenly you're at the pre-Hugo, the, the pre-reception, you know, sort of reception. You're going to the VIP seats. You're going to the after-Hugo losers party, all this kind of stuff. And it really changes how you feel about it, you know? So, I don't know. It, that maybe that, well, maybe, that, maybe that's my personal thing this time is because I'm back to being an outsider and because I find this year's ballot so underwhelming. Just, I mean, there, there are probably, I mean, I, I will, will fess up. I would suggest to you, Gary, that this year I genuinely care if Alistair Reynolds' Slow Bullets wins Best Novella. I really, really would like it to win it. Mm-hmm. I would be happy to see Naomi, Naomi Novik win for Uprooted and don't especially care about you know, on an emotional level with any of them. There's none of the, no- mm-hmm. the novel- novelette or short story candidates I personally care about. None of them were, were my picks. The related work, I eagerly want something to not... Maybe that might be what will get me there. There are things that I want to see not win, and I feel strongly about them not winning, so I want to go and see that they don't. But that just doesn't feel like the right emotion for it. That's, that's, that's that, absolutely not the right way to go to the Hugos. And I, I, I think it's true. You, you, you normally don't go to an awards ceremony to watch people being defeated, uh, because that's kind of a downer. And, and, and George Martin has said this, and Eric Flint and others, that you know you don't want to simply use the no award vote as a cudgel um, to punish people, some of whom may not be involved at all. I think there are two issues here. One is you're right. There's a lot of stuff on the ballot that I, you know, I will, I've, I've not voted because I'm actually going to look at the Hugo packet. Look at it. I'm not going to try to read my way through it um, if I can't get past the first page or two. There's a difference between just not being interested or not being invested in the work, which I also feel for probably the majority of things on the ballot, and actively wanting somebody to win or actively wanting somebody to lose. Um, probably the worst thing that can happen to the Hugos is that nobody cares. Well, nobody gets really, nobody really wants to see uh, the puppy ballot trounced. Nobody really wants to see their own people win. They just aren't interested. And if that's what we'll do the Hugos in, it's not going to be slate voting. It's going to be enough of this that people just lose interest. The ennui that follows on. Well, I've got to tell you, I think it's a real risk. Exactly. I've, I've started to hear it. I've got friends of mine who used to care about the, the Hugos going, I don't know if I can be bothered voting this year. You know, like they're eligible to yeah, vote, it's, but it's, I don't think they can be bothered voting because what's the point? I mean, they've done the tests and it looks like a pluribus Hugo, the change to the Hugo rules, will have minimal to no effect. Right. So, so it's going to be an interregnum when the sad puppies basically throw it around and beat it up until they get fed up with it. And then maybe slowly it can be rehabilitated. Maybe in eight or 10 years, you think, well, maybe I'll come back then. Um, I, I, I think that's a very reasonable scenario. It may not be that long. Uh, it may be that when, you know, if, 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 if enough disinterest is, is created in the Hugos, then it's to nobody's interest to try to, to try to game the system anymore. And once that happens, um, over a period of maybe two or three years, they'll come back to their to their normal level. But the thing to keep in mind is that the normal level of the Hugos, as we were saying, doesn't 
generate passion among most voters. I, I know almost nobody, I don't think I've ever met anybody, who feels passionately about every Hugo category. No, um, no, that's and, true. And, 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 and so it is these, these subsets. The people, uh, you know, the, as, as we said before, the people that I tend to feel sorry for are people in areas like um, best-related work, for example, because that's a category in which you very frequently get somebody who is up for their only Hugo only chance they'll ever have for a Hugo. They've done one book. Uh, they've done one uh, thing that, uh, that that may not recur. And, you know, if they get bumped off that year, they're, they're out of the running probably forever. Uh, and I feel bad for those people. I feel bad for people. It's like eligibility for the, for, for the, for the Campbell Award, you know. You feel bad for people who have been eligible for, what is it, two, three years you're allowed and then you drop off into oblivion. You're never eligible again. Well, hopefully and not we oblivion. To... Hopefully the rest of a successful career, Gary, is the point. Well, presumably, yeah. Which but is not, it, not it exactly oblivion. oblivion. I don't know. Uh, I, the Campbell Award is interesting. I never understood it exactly. We should say, in parentheses, not a Hugo. But it's like a Rookie of the Year Award. You know, you have three years to prove yourselves to us. And if you don't, we're sending you back to the miners, or what? I mean, it's uh, an odd kind of an award. Well, best new writer, I can understand. Yeah, there was a best new writer Hugo at some point in the past, but now it's a separate award with a separate set of rules. Yeah, look, the, I I like the, the the Campbell Award and always have. I like the fact uh-huh. there's something that awards best new, new newcomer and you get the two years of eligibility or so, whatever the cutoff might be. I'm disappointed mm-hmm. this year because there are some really, really good writers who aren't on that list, who had outstanding yeah. years and belonged on it, you know. Sam Miller and Kelly Robson come immediately to mind. Uh, in fact, it's probably the most troubling category on the ballot for me, and I, you know, because you can go back and revise your ballot, I still may. Because, you know, Alyssa Wong, who's in her second year of eligibility, was on my list. Mm-hmm. But she's the only person on the ballot who was on my list. And I, I, I don't know whether I want to, by default, vote for her or, or what. You know, I'm, I'm unsure. I'm thinking on it. Well, which raises the other problem about, about, about these strange ballots is that you can't in, in many cases, can't blame somebody for being the only one who made it on the ballot because factors that are outside of their control. Um, I, 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 will, I will agree with you, and I'll stand corrected, that the, the Campbell Award may be the most interesting award, but it's an award that depends on a fairly knowledgeable readership. Yeah. And if that readership is not seeing a lot of work by Sam Miller or Kelly Robson, they're not going to... No, no to nominate the person. So you're basically talking about people who are likely to be magazine readers and short fiction readers. Yeah, that's fair enough. Which is which is fine. I mean, it's, it's it, those uh, that, that that's that's a very valid um, subset of voters. But I'm saying that that's a, a set of fairly sophisticated voters who have to know the work in advance. In other words, they have to know the work, the short fiction that's being published. Before it's going to appear in something like a, uh, you know, Hugo packet, um, which means that only the most knowledgeable yes. people or the most um, politicized people are going to vote in, in in that category, going to make nominations. Yes, that's true. Yes, you're either being following the field closely, or you are 
pushing some barrow. And obviously this year, four nominees got into the category because of somebody pushing their barrow. And Alyssa mm-hmm. Wong got on the, on, onto the ballot because people were paying attention to her work. Right. And is- it was a subset of the main audience because obviously the novels are out and about and get more attention. Let me, since we're skipping around, since we can't actually resolve anything today, let mm-hmm. me ask you, uh, let me think, what was the question I was going to ask? I don't know, I'll come back to it. What, what were you going to say next? Um, I think we, well, what I was going to say next is we started off the podcast by saying we frequently talk about how we talk about awards too much during the podcast and ended up talking about awards too much during the podcast. Well, that's because, Gary, the point that I was trying to make at the beginning was we hadn't been lately. We'd not gone through ah. the Hugo Award ballot because it's very on inspiration, on inspiring. Well, we hadn't gone through the nebula as much. We didn't talk about them when the, you know, the, when, the, when the ballot was announced. And now there have been winners. And even now we're not talking about who won the nebulas. We've made a point that they're all female, but we haven't gone through and said right. what we thought of the works and whether they're what we would have picked. And that's what we've done of late. You, you know, we'd have sat there and said, hey, look, there were four million nominees for Best Novel this year, Ancillary Mercury by Anne Leckie, Barsk by Lauren Sean, Fifth Season by Nora Jemison, Grace of Kings by Ken Liu, Raising Cain mm-hmm. by Charles Gannon, Updraft by Fran Wilde, and Uprooted by Naomi Novik, with Novik ultimately winning with Uprooted, which is actually a book I really, really like and expect mm-hmm. to do exceptionally well for the World Fantasy Award. Um. And the Jemison has been spectacularly well reviewed. The Leckie's the la- the final in a major series and all this kind of thing. So, you know, kind of an interesting ballot. Misses things which I would put on it. But we haven't been talking about well, that basis. <laughs> and I think it's because our feeling about awards has been challenged, Gary. Challenged? Well, with this whole puppy thing. I think if you begin, you know, sort of like, if the Hugos go down as being tainted or something or whatever you want to call it, uh, then does that also, do you, does that impact how you feel, start, start, you feel about other awards? You know, do you begin looking at the Hugos differently? Do you begin looking at the Locus Awards differently? The World Fantasy Awards? The World Fantasy Awards have had their controversies, obviously, with the actual statuette and everything. So, you know, it's... I think we have to make a distinction here between fans and readers. Fans are the ones who sometimes have political, or, by political, I don't simply mean uh, puppies versus social justice warriors, but they may have their own favorite kinds of fiction. There are people who, there are people who legitimately felt that things like military science fiction had been slighted in awards. Those are not all the puppies. There are people who felt that who are perfectly reasonable people. There are people who felt for years that fantasy was slighted. So when I say political, there are people who want a certain kind of uh, work to win. When I say readers, it's a much larger and more diffuse group. And over the years, I've known any number of people who would use Hugo ballots, Hugo finalist ballots, or Nebula finalist ballots, or winners, as a guide to what they were going to read the next year. Uh, to that extent, it was supposed to be kind of a an index to um, to what was best in, in, in the field in the previous year. I think that those readers are the ones coming out of this most confused, because I think it's fairly clear that uh, at least, you know, the, the, this year and last year's Hugo's ballot is not a fair index to the best of the work. It's, uh, it, it's something else. I think um, that's true. So, so, so by and large, that large mass of people who are occasional science fiction readers, um, I'm hearing, I'm getting emails from a lot of these people because of that lecture series I did. And people say, I read science fiction until I was 18 and now I'm thinking about getting back into it because I'm retired. 
Um, and they're the kind of people who know the Hugo Award. They don't know anything else about science fiction, but they know the Hugo Award. And every once in a while, they'll pick up that year's Hugo Award-winning novel to see how it's working. Actually, I was talking to a trustee of my university at a dinner just a couple of weeks ago who was uh, uh, whose who's reading group, not a science fiction reading group, was reading Anne Leckie's novels uh, because they were reading Anne Leckie's novels simply because this looked like an interesting novel and it has the imprimatur of Hugo on it. There you uh, go. So I think those people are the ones that are kind of going to disappear. The Hugo will lose its panache among those readers, I'm fairly certain, if it hasn't already. It, it might But the fact that Anne Leckie was in this reading group suggests that it hasn't already. Well, let's look forward for a second to something optimistically, because I don't know that I have a coherent response to that at the moment. Um, as we get towards the end of this episode, episode 295 million or whatever it is, um, mm-hmm. we are eight, ten weeks out from Worldcon. I have purchased mm-hmm. all of my plane tickets. I have booked my booking. I've cancelled all my bookings for Columbus, which I'm not going to. And I guess what I was thinking was, how are you feeling about the lead-up to the convention and what are we going to be doing there? I, for example, expect that I am going to... Well, I know. I'm going to be there for the was it the Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and leave early on the Sunday, so I'm missing a little bit of the convention. Um, mm-hmm. I'm hoping we're going to be doing at least one, if not more, public podcasts. And I've started to talk to people about a bar where we can possibly meet up with the listeners if they want to do that. That's something we've promised to do, and um, I don't know if we've ever actually done it or not. We have never actually done it, Gary. But we, 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 will, we will find a happy hour. Uh, the Cood the Street Happy Hour uh, will be from probably 4 to 6 p.m. at some bar in some hotel. Um, and does, that mean that we've done that does that mean that we've just done 275 on happy hours, Gary? Um, I haven't been unhappy, but, you know, I'm the one who's, who's recording these in the evening because I have a glass of wine with me. <laughs> yes, it's always happy hour at Gary's house during the Coon Street podcast. Well, that's fair enough. But here, but here's the thing. You're talking about you, – what you were talking about in terms of going to Kansas City, I think it'll be fun. We'll, yep, we'll make looking forward to that. plans with friends. We'll have lots of nice dinners. There will be some good programming. There's always enough – no matter what you think about Worldcons in general, there's always so much programming that some of it is pretty is, is good, is very good. Um, and so what we're talking about is we expect to have a good time in Kansas City at the Worldcon. I think and that good time, time is – absolutely, and it's a completely separate issue from what does or doesn't happen to the Hugo Awards. Um, so, so so I go back to the point that I've made before, and I've, I've argued this with, with, with various other people, including, including George, that – there's damage being done to the Hugo Awards. I'm not sure that damage is being done to the Worldcon. I think Worldcon is still going to be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Kansas no, no. City, yes, Worldcon's fine. Is a fine city. Yeah. No, no. There's, there's never been any issue with that. Worldcon is absolutely fine, and I wouldn't worry about its health. The Hugos, I think, may be into a 10-year lull, and I think it will be that long, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the way that goes. So it goes. And between now and then, I expect to be. I'm, I'm fairly certain I'll be at the Locus Awards in Seattle and probably at ReaderCon. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, 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 this, it's a, as we've talked before, it's kind of the convention season. It's where you get to see old friends and you get to see different kinds of friends in different yeah. kinds of contexts. I think the Locus Awards will be interesting this year. 
I'm sure it will be. I mean, I've never, I've, you know, I've been to one Locust Award ceremony like a million years ago and haven't made any of the others and probably never will make any of them, unfortunately. What I was going to say was that I may well come up with some, we should come up with some like a wacky idea for, uh, Worldcon. If they can maybe get us a, we, a spot every night where we, or afternoon where we can talk to people, we could have an episode where we let people who want to be on the podcast come up and we'll just talk to them on the podcast. One of like like one of those man in the street interviews they used to do in 1940s radio. Yeah, I mean, somebody, you, you and I'll sit down. We'll be talking. We'll record an episode. If someone comes up and says, "I want to be on the podcast," you say, "Sit down. We'll talk to you for ten minutes, whoever you are." That'd be great. That'd be fun. We almost did that at one Worldcon. Remember, we were at the Locust Table. Yes. And it, I don't remember if it worked out well or disastrously or not. Uh, but I, I, I actually, I love listening to things like that. I, there was a guy I met here in Chicago, uh, who's probably long since dead, who back in the 40s, his, his radio program was talking to Hollywood stars as they changed trains in Chicago on their way to New York. And the radio program, which I've heard recordings of, was, you know, train whistles in the background and bustling city sounds, and here's Clark Gable. Um, so we could certainly do something like that. We could even get costumes. We could we can get suits and and Homburgs and c- cigarette holders and things like that. Could no we? dress ups, no dress ups. Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> I have a nice jacket that could. I'm sure you do. Work that way. I, I think we're done, Gary. So okay. we're down to we're, we're down to fact, not even rambling, but B grade rambling. Maybe we'll wind we're this one up a little early. No, well, no, no. We will. Let's ask our listeners if they would be interested in having. A kind of open mic period when people who are interested in podcasts and have something to say want to come up. We will set up time for that. Can we promise that? We will try to. I mean, I'll talk to people technically to see what we can well, do, we, and then we'll work it out from there. Technically, we can't promise that, but, but in spirit, we're there. Yeah. And, it, I mean, what I would love to do, if, if we could get, and we couldn't, if we could get a soundproof booth in a bar, I would record episodes in the bar. But all the, the the background noise is just too much, unfortunately, uh, because this podcast belongs in the bar. Anyway, we're rambling. We should wind up. Okay. We should wind up, absolutely. I uh, anyway, will talk to you uh, next week. And we will, once again, next week, be episode, what, 200 and 300 and 400,000 of the Good Street Podcast? Something like that, 69, 100, 400. Eh, um, look, I'll look whatever. it I'll look it up if you want. I mean, it's going to be something. No, don't bother. It's there. like it's, 278 it's, it's, or 9 or. I mean, we missed a couple because we've kind of lost. Let, let's be honest. We've lost that loving feeling, Gary. We skipped a couple this year already because we just couldn't really get, get our act together. So we'll probably, you know, we'll get some more done at some point. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Summer's coming up. Um, Convention season is upon us. We'll be doing lots of interesting stuff. This was episode 276 of the Good Street Podcast. Thanks, Gary. Fine. That's that's enough. (laughs) 